0: So in the last talk, the first talk for some of you, uh, I made it clear that Padmasambhava is an expression of the Buddha, an expression of enlightenment itself, the enlightened mind of wisdom and compassion. Sangharaksita once said something like, Padmasambhava is the Buddha himself in his aspect of transforming the energies of the unconscious. He brings Panmasamava brings all those energies to light, and Trump transforms them onto the path. The fundamental insight, the fundamental wisdom of the Buddha, is, in the end, of course, inconceivable, beyond all thought or conception, or words or formulations. However, the Buddha did point to that wisdom. He did point to what he saw out of compassion for others so that they might comprehend it. He showed the best way, the most effective way, to approach that liberating vision. And the most fundamental, the most important description of the way things are, according to the Buddha, is called, in Sanskrit, Pratitya Samatpada, which can be translated as condition co-production or dependent arising. Putting this truth, this teaching, very simply, uh, it means that there is no fixed and unchanging substance or self anywhere, whether inside or outside, there is instead a continuous and unending arising and passing away of conditions, constantly interacting to create yet another set of conditions. There is, in other words, continuous becoming, continuous transformation. There is nothing permanent, separate, fixed, anywhere. Because of this, this insight of the Buddha is also called Shunyata, emptiness, voidness, which states this truth, of samapada, condition co-production very powerfully, very dramatically. Everything is emptiness in the sense of being empty of self-nature. The notion of shunyata, of emptiness, is not saying that in reality there's a vacuum. It's not some brand of nihilism. It's simply the truth that there is no abiding essence or substance anywhere. To avoid any notion of nihilism, this emptiness is sometimes described as luminous and radiant. And waking up to this, waking up to a luminous and radiant awareness of this, is enlightenment. However this luminous emptiness, this pratica samapada, has two aspects or is expressed by an individual in two ways. One way is described as cyclic. It's the wheel of life, the endless round of birth and death, the endless round of habit, of conditioned, narrowed down, narrowing down being. And this wheel of life, this endless round, arises from our unknowing of the truth of Pratichasamapada, of the truth of Shunyata. Because of our unknowing, we trap ourselves on the treadmill of life and death and habit. We just go round and around the same old habits. Loss and gain and so on and so forth. Uh, We get caught up in greed, attachment, Aversion, hatred, and so on. It's repetitive, it's painful, in fact it's a real drag. We don't know it's a real drag, but it really is a real drag. One of the uh, synonyms for nirvana, for enlightenment, is yoga kshema, which means something like rest from toil, rest from toil, as though uh, sangsara is just exhausting toil the conditioned being. And actually when we look at ourselves and we look at our habits from a certain perspective, we just think, what hard work this is. The second aspect of this summit Samatpada arises from the dawning of awareness, the dawning of wisdom, the dawning of a kind of faith that arises from profound dissatisfaction. Dissatisfaction with this toiling that makes us look up and out of the treadmill that we're on. And this second kind of praticha Samapada condition co-production is expansive and creative. It's more like a a spiralling rather than a cycle, rather than a wheel. We begin to grow up and out of all limitations. We see through limitations and unfold into states of expanding awareness, where states of awareness in which there's a kind of softening of the distinction between self and other. There's a kind of seeing through that rigid sense of separate self. And we open up to, there starts to unfold states of love, of generosity, of clarity, of increasing happiness and satisfaction, and a sense of going deeper into the mystery of life towards enlightenment. All Buddhist practice is about setting up the conditions for such creative movement. And in a Buddha, that movement is irreversible. A Buddha is someone in whom there's just a continuous creative movement, a continuing deepening, a a continuing and spontaneous exploration of the mysteries and depths of existence and active love and compassion to show others how to achieve that. Because life is essentially unfixed and insubstantial, because it's in a state of transformation, every moment presents a possibility. Every moment is rich with potential there's a choice at every moment to stay on the treadmill to close down to imprison ourselves more deeply in the wheel or to step out to expand to liberate and over the centuries Buddhist tradition has described that choice that is presented at every moment in different ways and one of these describes that choice in a very dramatic way indeed, in terms of a kind of, well you can only really describe it as a sort of cosmic myth. And this myth is found in the testimonial record of Padmasambhava, the Padmakatang the life and liberation of Padmasambhava. Found, and uh, this particular text being found by the great treasure revealer Ergin Lingpa. And the great myth that is told here occurs early on in the work and it gives the kind of cosmological background for Padmasambhava's innumerable lives making it clear that Padmasambhava is not simply a historical person but more like a transpersonal stream of enlightened consciousness co-terminus with the dharma with a particular kind of function that of transformation, transforming as we've seen The dark, chaotic, destructive energies of life uh, in order that those energies will enrich the Dharma. And we had an example of that in the talk the other day about the conversion of the gods of Tibet. Now the myth that we're going to look at today describes the birth and the lives of the demon Rudra and his subjugation and transformation. So let me tell you the story of Rudra. And the story begins, the old text says, after the end of the teaching of Samantabhadra. And immediately we need to mark this detail. Samantabhadra, according to the Nyingma tradition, his name can be translated as the all-good or the omnibeneficent, is the name, Samantabhadra is the name for primordial Buddhahood. Buddhahood beyond time and space, the eternal transcendent nature, the luminous, empty nature of all things. But in the story I will tell, we are out of that time. We are not beyond, this is very important. We are not in eternity. We are very firmly in the world of duality, the world of choices. And we're in the land of Dujong Chan, wherever that may have been. And in the land of Dujong Chan, Dujong Chan, hard to say, Padmasambhava took birth as a great teacher named Tubka Jonu, which means the Invincible Youth. And in this land he had two disciples. One of them seems to have been the lord of the land himself, And at his ordination, Tubka, the teacher Tubka, gave this lord of the land the name, his ordination name, Tarpa Nagpo, which means Black Liberation. The other disciple was Tarpa Nagpo's servant. And at the time of ordination, he was given the name Denpag, or Orderly Restraint. I'm sure these names... highly significant. Ordination is traditionally a very powerful ceremony in which very strong bonds are formed between you and your teacher and you and your co-disciples especially the disciples that you're ordained with at the time of ordination. Very very powerful bonds uh, the, the, these are regarded as and uh, you break them at great risk, at great peril and at the time of their ordination Tupka Shanu, the teacher Pabasambhava, exhorted Thalapa, Nagpo and Denpag with a strong teaching on the importance the crucial importance of spiritual friendship so a great bond has been formed between these three after this, Tarpa, Nagpo, and Denpag entreated Tubka for an essential summary of the Dharma, a pith teaching. They asked for the path that causes release from all suffering in just a few words. And this is what the great Tubka said In the uncontrived nature of existence, Though you live following the four evil acts, that's killing, stealing, sexual misconduct and lying, though you live following the four evil acts, they are just like clou- clouds in the sky. This is the path of genuine yoga. If you don't realise this, then no higher stage of development will be found. This was the teaching of Tupka-Shanu, Padmasambhava. And thalpa and Denpag were delighted and off they went to put the teaching into practice. So what did they do? Well, they practiced in very different ways. thalpa took the teaching literally. He dressed like a monk He put on the show of a superior and holy person, but he broke the basic precepts. It's not clear whether he broke them mentally or in actual practice. He indulged in breaking the the, the basic precepts. But certainly he became very attached to harmful thoughts, negative thoughts, and became more and more greedy and angry and puffed up with pride. And of course he was in quite a lot of pain doing that. Denpak, his former servant, now a spiritual friend, was different. He was ordinary and humble, he had no show, he just got on with the spiritual life. He understood what the teaching really meant, the real spirit of the teaching. So he saw through all his unskillful tendencies. He saw them like clouds in the sky and observed the basic precepts and he was growing along the path of the Dharma. And one day the two of them met, after we don't know how long they'd been practising like this, but the two of them met to sort of compare notes. And they were both utterly shocked at each other's interpretation of Tupka's teaching. And they argued. Denpak remained calm and polite throughout the argument. He remained in meditative calm. Tarpa Nagpo was furious and proud that the f- at the fact that Denpak could even disagree with him. And the essence of their disagreement was this. Tarpa Nagpo said the teaching was this Denpak, your theory and practice are wrong. The poisons and wisdom are essentially the same. You don't gain enlightenment through the practice of tiresome virtues I am established in an absolute effortless state and Dempag said no this is the teaching consciousness purified of obsessive attachment is pure wisdom then the poisons dissolve like clouds in the sky on the path so one must strive practicing ethics meditation and wisdom this is the teacher Tupka's intention. And Tarpa Nagpo was enraged at this. He was absolutely furious that he, there could be this disagreement from his servant. You know, he obviously was still relating to him in this way, hadn't really gone forth at all. He said, Right, okay. Come on, we're going to see our teacher Tubka Jonu. He is pure, he is honest, he won't deceive. He will decide who is right. And he's obviously convinced that he's going to be right. So they went to the teacher, Tukka, and Tukka just said simply and clearly, Denpak is right. You make effort along the path to purify the mind. And Nagpo flew into a rage of resentment. He sent Denpak away and said, you're, you're just a servant, you've always argued with me, piss off. Doesn't quite say that in the ancient text, but it's the, it's the only thing occurred to me. Um, and he was angry with Tubka, his teacher, and he banished him from the land. said, get out of this country. He was filled with resentment, blame, anger, and he went on an orgy of disrupt, destruction. He was so proud, so eaten up with anger. So let's hear how the ancient text describes what he got up to, you know, in response to all this. Then the monk Tarpa Nagpo turning himself to the activities of the hunt and other worldly ways incapable of reciting the mantras for the contemplation of the Buddhas violated in his savage mind his vows to superior his teacher and brother. He enlarged and multiplied endlessly the doors of the Dharma instead of weighing the Dharma as he should have. Tarpa following the inclination of the logic dear to himself led everyone astray on an evil path in his aberration he freed the male demons and gathered the female demons under his power and he took the dead into charnel houses in order to have his fill of them he put on he put on human skins which caused him to have scabs instead of cattle He raised bloodhounds and other beasts with rapacious instincts. Assembling the courtesans, he consecrated them and took sport in luxury with them. The nature of the four substances was transgressed. I don't know quite what that means. We can imagine. (laughs) Among the ten iniquities, he presided over evil hangings, And the lords, his lords and army, resembled brigands. Wow. So uh, let's just pause here. It's uh, very significant, this particular part of the story. There's all kinds of levels of interpretation. One of these is that you need to be clear when you communicate the Dharma. Dubka Jonu, although a great teacher, although a manifestation of Padmasambhava did present the dharma in let's say an ambiguous way one disciple got it the other didn't and got into tremendous difficulties he fell away from the dharma and the fact that the story is put like this means that there was probably a problem in tibet when this text appeared people there were people taking the teaching of emptiness The teaching of Buddha nature, the teaching of non-duality, literally, and getting into serious difficulties, falling out with fellow disciples, falling out with their teacher, falling away from the Dharma. But I think the story is also symbolic. It's also showing those two possibilities that are open to us in relation to the empty, insubstantial nature of life we are always presented with two choices. There's either the choice of Tarpanagpo, who is rigid, literal, self-centred, indulgent, and attached to negative emotions. There's that choice. Or there's the choice of Denpak, who is ordinary, unassuming, who has a much looser relationship to experience, and who trains along the path, who sees the need for the path, because he sees the ever-changing nature. Tarpa Nagpo and Denpak are both in us. They are both there. Tarpa Nagpo manifests when we go round the wheel of life. Denpak manifests when we tread along the spiral path. They are both possibilities in our experience. And for Tarpa, Tarpa Nagpo, things just get much, much worse. He plunges deeper and deeper into Sangsara. He has terrible rebirths. Let's, uh, and then gets, after thousands and thousands of years, he's reborn in a particular way. Let's have the old text again. When he had for 12 cycles practiced the Black Doctrine, incarnations followed each other. He had 500 existences as a black jackal, 500 as a wandering mastiff, Five hundred as a carnivorous mongoose, five hundred as a bee with a poisonous sting, and five hundred as a nimble worm. Still more, still more, he had—I'm sure these are aspects of ourselves. Still more, he had as a ghost, a sucker of feet, and other inconceivable things. And five hundred as, as an—sorry. And five hundred as an eater of vomit, and others lower than the rank of animals. After various births, lower than the rank of ghosts, he received a new form as a flesh eater, nora of bones. Again, he was re- he was reborn with neck and shoulders rotten, pus ghost, named eager to make inquiry. <laughs> So just watch it when you're talking to Buddhists, when you're eager to make inquiry. (laughs) Then, at the end of 20,000 existences, in Lankapura, the land of the ogres, a courtesan named Kuntugyu, wandering everywhere, mated with a mara of the twilight and a demon of midnight and a genie of the dawn also mated with her. And she conceived. The fathers being three fierce spirits, there was born at the end of eight months a child with three heads. It had six hands, it had four feet, it had two wings which pushed into its body, it had nine eyes, three on each head. It presented multiple appearances. As soon as it was born Calamity announced itself. Sickness filled the lands of Lankar. The amount of merits done declined. Famines, wars, epidemics and the three scourges increased and there were nightmarish dreams of many deadly beings. Nine months after his birth, the child fell ill and Kuntugyu herself died. The people of the land said this bastard of ill omen must be disposed of secretly. In the root of the funerary tree there was a poison naub There was the black swine of the tombs a lair of error in the middle of which was the venomous serpent the container of hate and at the peak was the nest of the kite of desire. The ogres bring their dead to this place. It is the haunt of the elephant and the tiger, and here reptiles instill their poison. It is also here that the darkenies convey the corpses, and here, at the root of the tree that the ogres build build their tombs, the child was buried with the dead mother. Now, embracing his mother, the child nursed her breast, with the result that he sustained life for seven days with the yellow fluid. Then by sucking her blood, he lived seven days. Then by eating her breasts, he lived seven days. Then by eating her viscera he lived seven days. And by eating her fleshy behind, he lived seven days. Then by eating her bone marrow, the corrupted spine marrow. And by eating the brain... He lived the span of seven days. For 42 days his body grew, and when he no longer had anything to eat, he shook and made the tomb collapse. On looking inside, the darkenies saw that the cadaver had been devoured. Having eaten her flesh and drunk her blood, he had also taken her skin as a tunic and her skull as a cup for bloody libations. Seeing a serpent, he made himself an anklet for his foot, a bracelet and a necklace. Finding a dead elephant, he ate its flesh and stretched out its skin. He drank the blood and ate the flesh of a tiger and used its pelt as a cloak. And from his mouth he produced the fixed form of a curd of blood. And from his body he disposed of a small pile of ashes. And he who had eaten his mother for nourishment... And dressed himself in her raw skin, who in his thirst had drunk her blood, and who in action had perpetuated crime, who to live had lived off the dead, had a complexion which shone with light. White on the right, red on the left, blue in the middle, his faces were fierce, his giant body was of a pale ash colour, his face was maliciously gracious, with coarse, muscular bundles of rough flesh. He attached on one side of himself a row of withered heads, and hung fresh heads about him. He made himself a garland of three fringes, dangling with skulls, and he oiled all his cheeks with red semen. On his body a swine skin grew. His mouth and eyes were scarlet. His mop of hair, red with the mud of his hanging curls, he tied in a knot of half length with five kinds of asps. Armed with bird cl- claws on all his limbs, he tied to these in turn the serpents of five species. He swallowed voraciously flesh and blood, every prey which he could seize, boar spears and whatever serve as a weapon he carried. From his left hand he drank from the skull filled with blood. His breath, Gave rise to all the contagions of heat, his nose to the various kind of cold illnesses. From his eyes, from his ears and from his lower orifices issued the 404 sorts of typhus maladies. Evils of air, earth, water and fire, acute quinsies stomach spasms, malignant gastritis, the ulcers of leprosy, the scabs of smallpox. Great plagues, dropsies, abscesses, erysipelas, whatever they are, cow lickings, abscessed kidneys, manifold and terrifying ravages were spread abroad. By name he was called the one who devours his mother, Matarangara. Phew. <laughs> Of his lectures, Sangharachcha said he thought we really ought to get to know Tarpa Nagpo better. He's a really, really good, well, demon—not good in the good sense. But <laughs> anyway, this is the fully formed demon, Tarpa Nagpo Rudra, Matarangara, the one who devoured his mother. A demon of incredible power, and actually, he becomes after this a total tyrant he becomes the ultimate control freak, the cosmic control freak, the cosmic tyrant and dictator. Because after this, he just goes about subjugating the entire cosmos. He just goes one country after another, one world after another, one dimension after another, uh, just conquering. And everywhere he goes, he comes in this huge, demon with his retinue, shouting, who is greater than me? Who is greater than the one who devours his mother? And if he hears, heard any murmuring anywhere, somebody saying, well, I don't think you're that great. (laughs) Um, He just swooped down into that realm, usually killing whoever was there, who had the misfortune of being there when he turned up, just killing them with the poisonous stench of his breath. Didn't need to do anything else. And so many became his followers the entire world with its gods and men just sold out just they put up a bit of a resistance but they couldn't do anything he just took over Rudra in some respects seems like a much more sort of uh, violent and um, kind of crazed version of Sauron from the Lord of the Rings in some ways He's this uh, crazy, crazy tyrant and this dark magic force of terrible, destructive power. And everybody just gives in, just gives up. And of course, you know, we do see this in the world. Uh, We see it all around us. You know, people are just giving up in relation to tyrants. The threat is so great, so powerful. People just sell out to these cosmic control freaks. Sometimes uh, I need study on the basic precepts. And of course, the first precept is on, is abstaining from killing living beings. And when we're studying it, people say, well, I think it would be better if it was abstaining from harming living beings because, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not going to kill anybody. And, uh, you know, you know. Uh, so it's better that it's harming. And you think, well, in a way that's reasonable um you know I, you know but then you ask them and say um well, are you sure are you absolutely sure that you wouldn't kill are you absolutely sure that you wouldn't condone killing or turn a blind eye to killing or turn a blind eye to repression what would happen if there was civil war what would happen if a tyrant took over and normalised the persecution of minorities or threatened you, are you sure? Are you absolutely sure that your impulse to join in with the group, that your impulse to harm, to kill, to turn a, just turn a blind eye to repression, are you sure that you've overcome that impulse? Are you completely convinced of that? Are you convinced that your loving kindness, your basic human decency, is actually unconditioned, is independent of conditions? Because that's what you're saying, that it can stand alone in the face of hostility. I remember l- listening to a, a really brilliant radio program. Some, some, I think it was sometime last year. It was uh, Radio 3's World Re- Ro- uh, World Roots? Good old BBC. And, uh, and uh, it was about these Afghani Sufi musicians, these qawwali singers. They were a really lovely Kuali group, great singers, great musicians. And they survived the Taliban. You know, Taliban in Afghanistan, you know, supported, backed, funded originally by our Western governments. Hmm. Um, you know. <sighs> um, they banned music. They banned music. They, and there's a whole musician's quarter in Kabul. And they repressed these musicians. They locked them up. They beat them. And the interviewer said, well, what did you do when you were treated like that? And uh, this musician said, he said, well, in our Sufi tradition, it said, actually, you can see God clearer when the house has been knocked down when the roof has been knocked off the house you can see the sky when they beat us we just sung louder wonderful I really really had something those guys really had something and I salute them to stand up against that kind of repression not to give in but you know you see it. I've seen good smiling friendly Hindus turning to a snarling mob and attack a lone Muslim. They weren't human beings anymore. Kind of beforehand they were. But when this thing, this pack mentality happened, they were no longer human. This is what can happen. The demonic is not so very far away from us, actually. Its seed is in our ignorance and anger and pride and jealousy and insecurity and cowardice and all the rest of it. Its seed is in our condoning of that kind of behaviour, of the, of, of the behaviour of ignorance and anger and pride and jealousy. And the only sure way of dealing with it, being free of it, is through being established in qualities that are unconditioned that can stand independent of all hostile conditions. Buddhism would say you can only be sure of it when you have the qualities of a Buddha. He has stand-alone, unconditioned qualities. So let's not be complacent when we start talking about the demonic. Let's not be complacent about our humanity. Leaving aside spiritual qualities, are we really sure that our humanity is really fully, definitively established. Unlike Sauron, unlike uh, sorry, unlike Sauron, unlike the devil, Tarapanagpo, Rudra, Matarangara is not absolutely evil. The depths of the wheel of life are like everything insubstantial, so they're capable of transformation. The demonic might be thick darkness, but it's still possible to see through it. It's still possible to do something with it. So what happens next in the great myth of Rudra, who's now the cosmic controller and uh, time's running out? What happens? Well, what what happens when, when there's a problem? There's a meeting. There's a meeting. It's just... Just like in the FWBO, you know, <laughs> if there's a problem, have a meeting. Get the sangha together. The problem in your centre, sangha comes together. Have a meeting. Have days of meetings. <laughs> and the meeting that took place was no ordinary meeting because it was held between the Buddhas. There was a great gathering of enlightened beings. Amitabha was there. Akshobhya was there. Varuchina amogha turned up ratnasambhava avalokiteshvara turned up tara and also there was vajrasattva there is an image of vajrasattva there and vajrapani a powerful deep blue vajrapani interesting vajrasattva actually was formerly the teacher tubka shunu the teacher of rudra who gave him that teaching And Vajrapani was actually Denpak, the co-disciple of Rudra. Unlike Tapa Nagpo, they had followed the path to Buddhahood. The teacher becoming Vajrasattva, the disciple becoming Vajrapani. So in this meeting, the Buddhas decided, they said, they were very clear, there was no big debate, no big wrangles, People didn't dwell on their feelings and so on. They just said, something must be done about Rudra. The whole cosmos is going down under the tyrant. He's got to be subjugated. He's got to be dealt with. And the Buddhas, all the Buddhas, said the responsibility for that lay with Vajrasattva and Vajrapani. were sort of all kind of joined up, pointing out, they said, well, You've got the connection with him. I'm sure they didn't say it quite like that, but. You know, they said, Vajrasattva, you were his teacher once. You were Tubka Shanu. You taught him. And Vajrapani, you were his spiritual friend. So you've got the connection. You've got the responsibility. You've got to sort it out. They didn't exactly say, you've got us into this mess. (laughs) They were Buddhas after all. But you've really got to do something. And it really does sound like a community meeting or a council meeting, you know, where something's happened and everybody's trying to find the person who's really responsible for it. But anyway, Vajrasattva and Vajrapani agreed yes, it's our responsibility. They agreed joyfully and they took a great vow to conquer Rudra. They said said yes. We will conquer, we will subjugate, we will master, we will transform Rudra. And they were blessed and consecrated for their great endeavour. And off they went to conquer the demon. So what did they do? How did they go about dealing with Rudra? Well, it was rather unusual what they did. Because Vajrasattva transformed himself into a little horse. And Vajrapani transformed himself into a little pig. And they flew to a mountain in the land, a great mountain the land where Rudra was staying. And they started to fly around the mountain with complete freedom, happily, making a sort of buzzing noise. The little horse and the little pig lighting up the big mountain. And the great, ugly, wrathful Rudra ash-coloured rudra with the three faces and the semen-smeared cheeks. Heard them buzzing around. He just heard this buzzing noise. You know, this huge thing starts to... And he saw these little figures, you know, going around this mountain. He'd not seen these creatures before. And he said, hey, you, hey, you, little ones, what are you doing flying around? I am the great and all-powerful Rudra. Everyone bows to me. Show me some respect. Okay, thought little pig and little horse. (laughs) So they flew over to big Rudra, the enormous Rudra, to pay their respects, flying towards this little pig and this little horse, flying towards the terrible, yes, ash-coloured, ash-smeared body, the massive body of Rudra with his three faces and his wings his, his skin smeared with those horrible substances and adorned with death's heads and coils of serpents and with many arms carrying all sorts of weapons and implements and they flew in low the little pig and the little horse so there's big Rudra standing there and little pig and little horse are going where we can't sort of see them And then the little horse, Vadrasattva, entered Rudra's penis. And as you'd expect, Rudra stretched his legs in pain. That was his immediate response. And at that moment when he stretched his legs, the little pig, covered in grease, entered his anus. (laughs) He went right into him, right up him. They don't like it up (laughs) him. And the horse and the pig united inside the massive body of Rudra, causing Rudra intolerable pain. And he called out, Phew! Mommy, Daddy! What's going on? I mean, imagine it. Well, don't. <laughs> What's going on? He's being taken completely from the inside. It must have... Well, he felt terrible. There's just these violent changes, and he's Completely out of control. His grip on everything was just going completely. But he thought he was Rudra after all. He struggled. But the horse and the pig were kind of dancing inside, having a great time. Even blending, uniting to create a kind of God. Becoming something extraordinary. And they were singing a really weird song from inside him. Singing this song that goes, The horse and the pig have subdued Rudra. The Buddha has subdued the demons, the Dharma, untruth, the Sangha, evil friends. Fire has conquered the trees, water has conquered the fire, the wind has blown away the clouds, the diamond has smashed the rock. Last night's nightmare is over. Rudra, he was in terrible pain. He was hearing this song going off inside him. He's furious. Really, really angry. It's just, you know that. Ink, you know when you see those films. Maybe I'm sure none of you experiences that kind of uncontrollable, blind, helpless rage. Well, that was Rudra's state. And then a terrible voice resounded. End your anger. And Rudra stopped fighting. And all his demonic forces were vanquished completely. They just saw that he'd been tamed. He just stopped. And then Rudra just felt terrible shame. Terrible remorse. He could see everything he'd done over innumerable lives. And he came, by this time, the Buddhas had all gathered. Vajrasattva and Vajrapani had done their work and all the Buddhas arrived in a great mandala. And Rudra with great remorse and shame. Terrible, imagine, you know, all the things he's done, the burning remorse. He came to the Buddhas, and especially to his old teacher, Tupka, now Vajrasattva. He came and he began to sing a lament, a heartfelt confessional lament, completely opening up to all the evil that he'd done. Getting it out, spewing it out, from the depths of his poisoned heart. I'm just going to read you some passages from this lamenting confession of Rudra. Om, great compassionate Bhagavan Vadrasattva, immaculate colour of colour of conch, most excellent form, pure and brilliant, spreading the light of a hundred thousand suns, hero, resplendent. With a thousand rays of light, knower of the triple existence, renowned as the teacher, only friend of all beings of the three realms, loving protector, lord of compassion, please listen to me. Since time without beginning, I have taken wrong paths, lost my way, and wandered in the rounds of existence. In former lives I was mistaken in committing wrong actions and misdeeds. For all these evil deeds, deeds, whatever I have done, I feel strong remorse and regret. I am foolish and deluded, a great sinner with evil karma. By the power of karma I am reborn as Rudra in the realm of desire. I feel remorse for this rebirth. This karma is exhausting. I feel weary and I regret. Although I entered the teachings, I have been unable to follow them. My body, speech and mind have fallen prey to evil deeds. Forced about by the fierce storm of karma, I have for countless former eons wandered through the dark dungeons of samsara. So, Protector, through your compassionate blessings, May you purify my obscurations of karamas and poisons and establish me right now in your presence like a loving mother. Brilliant like the sun and radiant like the moon, your compassionate face is captivating to behold. Since beginning this time, blinded by the cataract of ignorance, my physical eyes have been unable to perceive you. So where do you stay right now, protector of beings? Dhaka, you possess the strength of compassion. And since the karmic residue of previous ties is powerful, do not be vague, indifferent or indolent, but regard me sincerely, victorious deity of compassion. Lead me out of the swamp of sangsara and guide me quickly to the supreme state of Buddhahood. Protector, due to my ignorance and delusion, I have gone against and broken my vows. Guru, protector, please grant refuge. Supreme Vajra Holder, the one who has the nature of great compassion, to the leader of beings I go for refuge. And after this, after this confession... Which is that was just some extracts from it. Rudra enters the mandala of the Buddhas. He becomes especially a protector of the Dharma. It said he retains his powerful body, but now it will serve and protect the forces of wisdom, love, and compassion. And this lamenting confession of Rudra is regularly chanted by the Nyingma. By the, by the practitioners of the Nyingma school of, of Tibetan Buddhism, the followers of Padmasambhava. They are, as it were, when they recite this confessional verse, they're identifying with Rudra. They're seeing the poisons, the unskillfulness in them as the seeds of the demonic. They're chanting to churn the depths of samsara. They're chanting this lamenting confession in order to change, in order to transform themselves into the Buddha of Adrasattva. So what are we to make of the myth of Rudra and his conversion, his transformation? The myth is communicating, first of all, the way to take, the way to transform the demonic. You go for its weak spots. You go for its tender spots. I mean, the horse and the pig really hit him in his tender spots. We need to find the weak spot in the demon. And this means cultivating constant, continuous vigilance. It means cultivating the quality of apramada, as it's called in Sanskrit. The bright, almost fierce, intelligent luminous awareness itself we need to be constantly on the lookout constantly on the lookout protecting the skillful the creative the positive that we've gained and watchful for the arising of the of of the unskillful noticing where the unskillful is weak and it's at its weakest at its beginning at its origin. That's when it's at its weakness. Let's take hatred. Well, you've got to watch for its arising. Notice especially when you're irritable. That time when you're irritable, you feel pain, you feel irritability, there is weakness. Hatred is weak at that point before it's kind of got going. You've got to get in there. That's its Anus, it's penis if you like right at the beginning you have to go in there at that point you have to go in there into that gap you don't let it grip you don't let it take you over you enter that space before it before the irritability can turn into hatred you get into that space with blazing loving awareness this needs to be constant continuous there's a kind of warrior quality to apramada it's mindfulness it's alertness it's a very broad awareness it's that watchful you're kind of ahead of the game you're you're uh, anticipating what could arise so you're never caught out this is the quality that that we need to develop if we're going to take the demonic. This is the bright, sharp, fulsome awareness awareness needed, rich too with loving kindness. And in this awareness there's a clear critique as well of how destructive, how demonic the poisons, the kleshas are. In the Life and Liberation of Padmasambhava it's said, that Rudra, although subjugated, keeps coming back. Uh, a Buddha, of course, has permanently vanquished Rudra. But even though we might individually, individually be liberated from him, Rudra keeps arising in the world. And it's easy to see Rudra's many and various manifestations in tyranny, war, injustice, intolerance, Oppression, poverty, drought, the destruction of the beauty of the earth. <coughs> rudra is everywhere. From a certain point of view, everything is Rudra. And if we are the true followers of Padmasambhava, we have to battle against Rudra, not only within ourselves, but in the world as well. We have to fight him, we have to resist him, even transforming transform him in his domain. It's said again in the Life and Liberation of Padmasambhava that within the various parts of the unsubjugated Rudra, in the vast body of Rudra, there are hidden great treasures of the Dharma. There are treasures in his eyes, treasures in his bone marrow, treasures in his various organs, his spleen, his heart, his kidneys. There's treasures in his blood and and bile. We have to go into the body of Rudra and extract the treasure. The cure is in the illness. The liberation, the transformation is within the demon. It can't really be anywhere else. Rudra is sangsara. Rudra is conditioned existence. And we are sangsara conditioned existence. And that's where we have to start. We find the treasure, for example, in dissatisfaction, in pain and suffering. There's a Dharma treasure there. There's a treasure in Dukkha. Because suffering shows that the pleasures that Rudra shows us and ensnares us with don't actually work, not ultimately. So we can pay attention to our dissatisfaction, our dissatisfaction with Rudra to discover the treasure of liberation. Externally, uh, discovering the treasure of Rudra, it means taking the Dharma onto the streets. It's why we have urban Buddhist centres all over the world. We're right in the heart of the beast, as it were. And there's treasure there, because there's people. There are people longing to escape the clutches of Rudra. I remember when I lived in India, when I lived in Bombay, which is a real Rudra kind of world in some ways. You know, we'd be doing talks and meditation classes, even retreats, you know, in busy marketplaces, in slums and shanty towns. And we'd develop a fantastic atmosphere. Between us in, in these places, you know, these really, really dark, difficult places, you know, full of toil and suffering. You know, that's where we had to be. This is why, to take another example, a very, very humble exa- example indeed, a very unromantic example, why we have our evolution shops, why we have our wind horse trading. Rudra manifests strongly in the economy. The economy is all Rudra. So we've got to deal with that. Every Buddhist sooner or later has to transform the economic demon. I was in, uh, one, in one of our ta- cities recently where there's a Buddhist centre and I went along to uh, the local evolution shop which is run by a fully Buddhist team. It was Christmas time. They had a lot of trade. Great. You know, they're earning lots of money to not just support themselves, but to give to the Dharma as well. So really taking the money out of Rudra and giving it to the Dharma. And it was a really positive atmosphere there. And they told me, the team told me that quite a few of their regulars actually go into the shop at Christmas time to get away from the madness of the high street and the shopping mall next door. Because they felt that the atmosphere among the Buddhists was better. So there's a treasure to be found there. A treasure to be found even on the high streets, right in the heart of consumerism. Now these things, mentioning these things, might seem small. And Rudra is so big. But remember, it was a little horse and a little pig that (laughs) took him, that entered him, that transformed him. So the myth of the subjugation of Rudra is a very important way of approaching the spiritual life, approaching the Buddhist life. And the subjugation is performed by spiritual friends. It's performed by teacher and disciple. It's blessed by the highest sangha, the Buddhas. It comes out of a meeting, a cosmic chapter meeting. And this too is highly significant. We don't battle Rudra alone. So often people approach the spiritual life in an essentially selfish and narrow way. That's actually self-defeating. If you take that approach, in the end, you just become another part of Rudra. You become another Rudra. Um Trungpa, describes, uh, Trungpa Rinpoche describes Rudra as the ultimate spiritual ape, the ultimate uh, posturing of, of pseudo-spiritual egotism, and we will be defeated. Rudra, whether internal or external, is transformed by the Sangha, by individuals seriously committed to spiritual practice, working together in harmony, drawing out the best in one another to establish, develop, maintain the forces of wisdom and compassion who who are determined to transform Rudra or at least to put up some stiff resistance. People working together can do so much you know all the things that, that we 've got in the FWB, this retreat center, our different centers around around the movement I mean they 're all the, the fruit of so many people 's efforts, so many people working together, um, and of course, there's so much more to do there's so much more to do in this world we 've hardly begun now, if I look around this room. And you know, just observing people on this retreat, what what is striking is an incredible collection of qualities, abilities, and talents. I don't actually have to know people that well. We don't have to know people uh, know people that way well. Just just to see that, it's quite obvious. It's quite evident. Well, let's just suppose, supposing us here, all of us just decided to go and do something something together in Rudra's domain. I don't know, maybe let's just go off and start a Buddhist centre, all of us, in, say, Hull. Let's go to Hull. It's a big conurbation. I gather it's a a bit of a rough town. Let's all go there and work for the Dharma there. I'm sure Rudra's strong there. Well, I think we'd do something incredible if we did, did that something would emerge greater than the sum of our parts and we would make a major contribution to the forces of wisdom and loving kindness in the world. So we need to harness, we need to activate, we need to liberate our energies and we need to cooperate with others. Rudra loves to divide and rule, so we've got to fight that. We need to look up and out and beyond ourselves and see ourselves as part of this transpersonal stream of energy that is Padmasambhava. When I was a a young order member, not long ordained, i have been ordained a couple of years, uh, if that, I went on my first order convention. Sangharashtha led all the meditations, led all the pujas, and he gave all the talks. Uh, No, some of us gave talks, but he gave the main ones. And he gave a talk which made a very... Well, all of those talks made a very deep impression on me and have definitely formed the whole way I approach the Dharma. But one of them was called A Vision of History. made a very, very deep impression. Sangharakshita in that lecture described history as a battle, a war even between the spiritual community, the Sangha, and the group. The Sangha being the harmonious association the free association of individuals committed to spiritual transformation spiritual group uh, growth the group committed to simply maintaining itself at any cost to others so he looked at history in this way and he talked about different spiritual communities not just buddhist spiritual communities he mentioned especially had a lot to say about manichaeism The religion, the Persian religion founded by Mani, who was a painter, who was non violent, who was vegetarian. He described Mani's community as a spiritual community. It was very popular, had a very positive effect, but it was also almost completely destroyed. It was completely obliterated by a combination of Islam and Zoroastrianism. And all we have left of Manichaeism is fragments and memories. And Sangharachita's point here was that the spiritual community, the group rather, doesn't use the same rules as the spiritual community. The group uses violent threat, violence, threat and intimidation. The spiritual community can't do that. It has to use love, compassion, wisdom and so on. It was a very, very strong talk And it seemed to be obvious that what he was saying, you are the heirs to a great and long and noble tradition. Not just a Buddhist tradition, but the tradition of individuals forming spiritual communities and you will have to face the forces of destruction. So it was a very, very uh, sobering talk and he was charging us to really be aware of what's around so, we need to align ourselves to the communi- community dedicated to the cultivation of blazing loving kindness and diamond hard wisdom, the community of those who follow Padmasambhava. We need to align ourselves, we need to even become Padmasambhava if we're to go into Rudra and extract the treasure. And in the final talk, I'm going to look at ways in which we might align ourselves more fully with Padma Sambhava.